0: I think if I went head to head with most people who are entrepreneurs, I have failed more than they have. And I can point to a $40 billion failure of inaction. That's a lot of billions of dollars. But the mistakes, the failures of action while they leave scars, aren't the ones that I spend time thinking about. I mostly think about the failures to act. The person who is right in front of me, who I failed to see who they were and understand their feelings, and their pain, and their dreams. The failure to extend a hand, or to find the empathy, or to be patient. These are the failures that haunt me.
1: Seth Gordon, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Kareem. It's great to be here. And thank you for consistently showing up and doing this work. It's much more difficult than people think it is. And I, for one, am glad you're doing it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. I think you've heard this from a, from a lot of folks that have had you on the show. There's always this like paradox of choice moment where you figure out like exactly what you want to talk about. And one of the things that came to mind is, I suppose that's kind of like an icebreaker. What was one book that you've always wanted to write that you felt you never could?
0: A book I wanted to write that I felt I never could. Well, books used to be based on scarcity, scarce shelf space at the bookstore, Share scarce paper. But now, of course, anybody who can use a keyboard can write a book. So I'm going to interpret the question as a book where the content is one that is holding me back. And I guess I've been trying to write that book without success, which is, or maybe some success, but not enough success. How can I unlock what people have inside of them that they know they can bring to the world to light people up and make things better, but they still hold back. Why is Pressfield's Resistance such an epidemic? Is there an incantation, a story, an anecdote, something that I could say that would help more people get the joke? And I think I keep trying to write that book, and I will probably keep trying to write it somewhere until I figure it out.
1: I think Related to that, I think you've you've told the story at least once, if not not several times, and it kind of brought you to this realization as of recent that perhaps the world doesn't necessarily need another marketing book. Perhaps the world needs something different. And it reminds me of, or of course, I'll let you tell the story, um, Jacqueline Freeman's Song of Increase. What does that bring to mind?
0: So Jacqueline is a friend, and I didn't know who she was when a fellow beekeeper told me about her work. She's a feral beekeeper. She's not feral, but the bees are wild. And she helps them evolve because one of the giant problems we have because of big honey is that bees are sort of trapped in the evolutionary cycle. And what she wrote about is the idea that at the end of a long winter, a beehive is pretty ragged. There's no honey left. The bees are struggling. And the Council of Maidens will encourage the rest of the bees to go out and collect as much pollen as they can in the spring. And within a few weeks, the honey is replenished, the hive starts to survive again. And then they do something extraordinary, which is they have the queen lay a new queen egg, which is weird because you can only have one queen at a time. And shortly before the new queen is born, all the adult bees, all the maidens, and the queen will swarm and leave the hive forever. And this is the Song of Increase. And it's stunning to hear and to witness. And what Jacqueline is talking about is the fact that each of us has the opportunity to do that. And so my book, The Song of Significance, was inspired by her book and by the idea that time is short and we have made a mess of the world we live in so that we could have conveniences, so we could be connected to each other, so we could have treats and feed everybody. And we're wasting it doing what we did yesterday, as opposed to singing a song that really matters.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of people are still in the honeymoon phase, no pun intended, of obviously like everything that's going on with the AI, with the AI revolution. But I think what people don't realize is that it really is a race to the bottom, as you say.
0: Yeah. The AI thing is just getting started. I mean, it's clear that AI is as dumb today as it will ever be. Ever again. Tomorrow it's going to be smarter and smarter the day after that. That anybody who does mediocre work in any field is going to be out of work because we can get mediocre work now for free. So that is an opportunity if you want to sure. race to the top or a giant problem if you just want to phone it in.
1: Yeah. And I mean it's I think it's something that like a lot of people are kind of like working through right now where where it's like they understand that this is something that they have to embrace, but in the same time they're trying to figure out. How to make sure that they don't get caught up in all of the hype that is going on around it, versus actually focusing on what they could truly do best themselves. Really, yeah. I mean, the CMO of uh, of Zapier, Kieran Flanagan, he he wrote a post on LinkedIn once that talks about the fact that marketing is never going to be more important than it is right now, because specifically because of you know AI and the fact that it's become so decentralized. It's never been more important to really build an audience, really build a tribe.
0: Well. I think for people who are listening to that without context, building an audience and building a tribe are not the same thing. Most people think they want to get the word out. I did an interview with someone earlier today, and she's trying to build her practice by getting the word out. And I'm like, Lori, you can't get the word out. Getting the word out is almost impossible now. There's so many words out that we don't need more of them. A tribe is a group of people that are connected by a story, a group of people who see each other and who gain value by being with each other. If we can organize, be part of, and inspire a group, it doesn't have to be very big for us to be able to make a difference.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think like one of the things that, and it's kind of, I think this is a nice segue into the first key moment, which is which is one failure. I think for me, like as a co-founder, I feel like, you know, many times, I feel like we, we should have already made it by now. And it's always this feeling of, always being behind as a as a creator of, of anything. In this case, it's the, you know, as a creator of a, of a startup. And I'm wondering if you can share a time when maybe you've had something similar feeling where you felt like you were behind in terms of versus like where you are right now. I'm not sure if this is a feeling that you've ever had before, because it is something that always like.
0: It's a feeling I have every day. <laughs> I guess I'm confused because The same way I get out of bed in the morning and I realize there is gravity, gravity's still here. Every day I get out of bed and I realize I'm behind. So I don't know if that's normal or not, but... What what makes you say that? Well, I have so much privilege and so many advantages and have been so lucky since the day I was born that I'm not in a race to beat some, you know, imaginary competitor. I'm in a race to make a contribution. And I have all these tools and I'm not using them as much as I should. I'm behind.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I'm that I'm going through at the moment and trying to get better at it. And I think what I'm learning is that like it's just really important to just stay in your own lane and focus on your own personal best as opposed to necessarily going into like the, the crazy rabbit hole of comparison, which I think theoretically a lot of people understand, but sometimes it can be a little bit tough sometimes.
0: Oh, okay. So I spend no time comparing myself to other people who are taller than me, better looking than me, have more money than me no time whatsoever. It's foolish. I spend a lot of my time comparing myself to a mythical version of me. And I find that's pretty generative. That if I can let myself be on the hook to be a better version of me, not a, I don't know, not very attractive version of Leonard DiCaprio, then that's a useful tool. Because I can't become more like Leonardo DiCaprio, but I could probably become more like me.
1: Yeah, I love that. So going to that first key moment, what was, I'm curious where you're going to take us with this. What was one failure for you?
0: I think if I went head to head with most people who are entrepreneurs, I have failed more than they have. And I can point to a $40 billion failure of inaction. That's a lot of billions of dollars. But the mistakes, the failures of action while they leave scars, aren't the ones that I spend time thinking about. I mostly think about the failures to act. The person who is right in front of me who I failed to see who they were and understand their feelings and their pain and their dreams. The failure to extend a hand or to find the empathy or to be patient. These are the failures that haunt me. Uh, the failure to recognize the World Wide Web when I was standing right there, that cost me a lot of money, but that doesn't haunt me.
1: And how has it kind of changed the way you go about things today?
0: I don't beat myself up about yesterday, but sometimes I beat myself up about tomorrow. And I have the freedom to decide what I'm going to do tomorrow. Most people don't. And I want very much not to waste that.
1: Beautifully said. Shifting gears for for one more second, what was one book for you that you feel kind of like challenged everything that you thought you knew?
0: There's no way I can pick one of them. I will tell you that when I was working on Lynchpin, somebody gave me a book called The War of Art, and it was really poorly published. It was in this funky metal sort of binding. And I was sitting here in the office reading it, and I was about 100 pages in, and I stood up and loudly said, Why wasn't I told about this book before? And (laughs) what Steve did in that book, and then my friends Roz and Ben did in The Art of Possibility and in what Lewis Hyde did in The Gift. And I got 10 more books like that. When you start to understand that there's an infinite game to be played, you can't unsee it. And so this arc of the infinite game and being able to recognize that we got tricked into a competitive small game instead of spending time on the generative bigger opportunity, those are the things that inform most of my thinking.
1: Yeah, I remember when I read The War of Art and then turning pro and then doing the work that trio, you know, it really helped personify a lot of the things that as creators, you kind of can't really put your finger on in terms of like, what is this invisible force between me and the kind of work that I'm trying to get done? And it's definitely one that kind of changed the way that I think and, and and operate a lot. And it's funny, cause like, I think in the book, like he talks about, as you and talks a lot, about like the different ways that resistance kind of like personifies itself to you. And I think different personifications like resonate with, with different people. And I think for me, like it was definitely a revelation just to be able to see how you can, like what, once you can give something a name, like I feel like you can start to at least be aware that this is a thing that is there. And I'll tell you like one of my biggest challenges is, is distractions and actually building self-discipline. One thing, I know that you're a big swimmer yourself. I am not. But one thing that I've tried to do is I've actually sentenced myself to a daily half a mile swim. At least I've been doing so for the last couple of weeks, more or less. And I hate swimming. But for me, this was just a way for me to like to, to do something that I think David Goggins sucks about in his two books, like to do something that that sucks <laughs> every day. And if you start off your day like that in the same realm as like eat that frog and and so on, you feel like, you know what, the day is actually not that bad because I I did the thing that I quote unquote hated the most at the beginning. I mean, yeah, it kind of brings to mind the war of art
0: and just, yeah, the challenge that comes with that. All right, so unsolicited help here. You did not sentence sentence yourself to swimming. And if you persist in calling it that, it's never going to get better. What you are doing is offering yourself the opportunity opportunity to swim. And the challenge needs to be not can you make it for half a mile. Challenge needs to be committing to getting in the water. After you are in the water, finishing the half mile is a prize. It's getting in the water that's a hassle. But the swimming can be fun, particularly if you learn a better technique. But I find the Zig Ziglar shift of get to versus have to is so important that you get to go to the Red Cross and donate blood. You don't have to do that. And when you think about how we approach a get-to opportunity, everything in our day gets better. So David has some smart things to say, but I do not believe you need to start your day by eating a frog. I think you can start your day by saying, can you believe how lucky I am that I get to go for a swim today?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it it really does change your perspective, and yeah, it's definitely something that I've try to practice. Like whenever whenever I do hear it, because I think even like in the work that we're doing, like I used to work a um, a corporate job before this, and try to remind myself that this is actually what I've chose. Like you know, before that with my corporate job, I felt like it was not what I wanted to do at all, and like right, what I'm doing right now, no matter how challenging, it's something that I wouldn't really trade for anything else in the world. And sometimes we're in your when you're in the middle of it, when when you're like head to head with resistance. It is something that you just have to put conscious effort to remind yourself of, but ultimately, it's um, you're better for it once you actually start thinking in terms of like that. You get to do that. Like no no one's pushing you to do to do the work that you've chosen to do.
0: Right, exactly. And before I forget, go on YouTube and look up total immersion. Total immersion swimming is going to change the way you think about swimming. It's going to take you three hours of hard work, and then your life in the pool is gonna to be totally different.
1: Love it. Is it something you've uh, you've tried before?
0: Oh, I do it every day. So the, the story is, I've been swimming since I was a very little kid. And I like swimming, but I was never good. I was never fast. And when I was at Yahoo, I went to a master swim class at Stanford, taught by the coach of the Stanford varsity swim team and by a consultant of the Olympic swim team. And the guy who ran the class is a guy named Bill Boomer. Bill Boomer, had a pot belly, made him 150 pounds overweight. He looked like he was pregnant. And he had one arm. So here's this one-armed pot belly swimming instructor. And Bill Boomer taught us what has evolved into total immersion swimming. It's a totally different way to be in the water. It is. It would be like if someone taught you how to walk, it's like barefoot running, but the equivalent of barefoot running for swimming. And the number of strokes you take per lap goes down by fifty percent. The joy goes through the roof. So I've—I don't think I've ever been in public talking about how cool total immersion is, but I'm voting for it. You should try it.
1: Yeah. No. Thanks. Thanks for that tip. I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Especially after you've, you've set it up like that, I think it's definitely one worth checking out for sure. I think yeah. Right now I'm kind of stuck in the the part where like you get to the end of the pool and then you have to do the um, that like turn. Oh, you don't have to do back, a flip turn. Go, a flip turn back, is yeah. just.
0: Flip turn is just showing. Flip turn, right. You should skip the flip turn. There's no oh, yeah? <laughs> you know, that's just showing. It's like when you when you uh, see a guy shining shoes and he snaps the, the rag, right? And making that noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the snapping is not cleaning the shoes. And the flip turn, it don't just skip it.
1: <laughs> it's just for sure. All right, I got you. Cool. Well, shifting gears a little bit, who is one person professionally that you find yourself thinking about a lot in terms of like just where you are right now in your journey and how far you come.
0: I'm working on a project with my dear friend Debbie Millman right now. And she and I have never collaborated before. And Debbie's heart and soul and magic makes a difference to me when we engage. Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun, we haven't met. I wrote the foreword for one of her books. She is a narrator in my life. And the memory of my parents, who I learned so much from professionally as well as a human, is also in my head. So there's four, but I got plenty more. I was with Nicole Walters last night. Her new book just came out today. And I learned from her. I could go on and on.
1: Yeah. Oh, I I can imagine. What were some of the things that, again, not, not necessarily the thing, but like, what are some things that they've kind of like been inspiring you with lately through their work?
0: So, the industrial systems we live in push us to do a faster, cheaper, more convenient job than the person who came before us. And most of the avatars of hustle culture are doing the same thing, right? Get more friends, get more clicks, get more likes, do more of this, do more of this, follow the path. Here are the steps. Pay your $19 subscription. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. And Debbie Millman says, how can I help? Pema Chodron says, don't take yourself so damn seriously. My parents said, there's always room at the table for somebody. We can make room. That when we approach our work as connecting leaders who are focused on resilience and generative behavior. It's the opposite of hustle culture. And you know, I came up in business when hustle culture seemed to be the only way to feed your family. And I learned the hard way that's not true. It's not the only way. The other way is to be missed if you were gone.
1: Yeah. And when when you say the hard way, uh, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, if you have a zero-sum mindset, it's mine or it's yours, then you don't have to make very many difficult decisions. It's mine or it's yours. I'm gonna take more than my fair share. If you have the other mindset, it's, well, maybe I should water the seed a little bit longer, because it might grow into a tree that could shade both of us. And you don't wanna water a seed that's not gonna grow, that just wastes your time. So you need more judgment. You need more insight. You need to make investments in humans and be patient as opposed to just take what you can get.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I mean, it it reminds me of, um, I think you have a collection of like really nice videos on your website. Uh, This one is from the page on the Song of Significance. If, If people want to check it out, we'll probably link to it as well. But you were talking about how people don't necessarily wanna work hard. And right now they have more reason than ever to not work hard if they are working in a culture where you know there is talk of you know ai where where there's talk of like people being replaceable the exact opposite of you know obviously like a, um, a linchpin and just you're not giving them much upside you're not giving them any reason to, to stay and i know that there's a lot of folks out there tuning in who are marketing leaders b2b sas startup like founders who are naturally trying to integrate the two they're trying to to keep the people they're trying to keep them motivated they're trying to make sure that they feel that they have purpose in their lives and that they really prioritize culture, but in the same time, you know, from a business standpoint, they are they want the efficiency that AI brings. And I think a lot of people are still figuring out how to how to navigate that without accidentally ostracizing some people.
0: Oh, there's so much in that. Okay, I'll start with this. I think people do want to work hard. I just think that people don't want to work hard on your project for you on your terms. I think they want to work hard on something that matters to them. And I don't think we have to spend a lot of time inventing fancy words about meaning and blah, blah, blah. I think we just need to accept or embrace the idea that what most people want is to do work that matters with people who care. What most people want is to be seen and to be connected and to matter. And that is significance. Significance is making a change you are proud of. So if you're building an organization, doesn't matter whether you're using computers, doesn't matter whether you're using AI, doesn't matter if you're running an organic farm. The question is, are you the person who is simply treating people like machines, telling them exactly what to do, measuring their short-term impact and giving them a manual, or are you saying all of us are smarter than any of us? It is possible to create the conditions for a cadre of people to lean into a problem and solve it. And there's nothing about being in business for a living that requires you to do the first one, nothing. And I can all day long, talk about organizations big and small, nonprofit and for-profit in the US and overseas that have figured out how to create these conditions. But it's not about having your HR people come up with a clever phrase. It's about figuring out who has agency and looking people in the eye and trusting them.
1: Yeah, and I mean, what's so inspiring is you've interviewed or you've pulled around 10,000 people in. Like almost hundred different countries and around specifically like what is it that makes them enjoy their job What what is it that makes their job great and i'm just looking at my notes here it's not what people think right it's not necessarily like autonomy it's not necessarily a paycheck that that keeps getting you know larger and larger it's a chance to make a difference it's to do something that brings them significance to exceed their own expectations for what is possible and yeah i think a lot of times people start, a lot of leaders, I imagine, start with that intention, right? And they've read <laughs> all the, the Simon Sinek books and they're they're into it. They, they really want to do it from a theoretical standpoint. It makes a lot of sense. But when shit hits fan, as it were, they kind of almost like default into this other way of operating. And so I was wondering if you could share with us a couple of ideas that anyone listening today, simple ideas that people can actually implement like tomorrow, you know, which is Wednesday. Things that right aren't overwhelming for the message.
0: Okay, so I have to rant for a minute about TLDR culture. TLDR is an Please. old internet expression, which means too long, didn't read. It means if a TikTok video isn't good in the next six seconds, go watch the next one. And it mostly means walk up to someone who has an insight to share and say, what's an easy, simple thing I can do before tomorrow? This is not your fault, I'm not picking on you, Kareem. I'm just saying this is our culture. And my answer is, if it's important enough for you to stop racing to the bottom, maybe it's important enough for you to spend 45 minutes reading part of my book. Maybe it's important enough for you to go for a walk with three people and actually talk about it. Maybe it's important enough that you don't need one simple thing you can do tomorrow that will prove this will change everything. And you know, when I wrote Permission Marketing shortly after I invented email marketing 25 years ago, A whole bunch of companies said, oh yeah, well, that's fine, but we need to spam people today because we need to make payroll. Well, 25 years later, the folks who are still around are the ones who took a little bit longer and earned a permission asset. And let's go down the list of every idea that's come along in the last 20 or 30 years. The short, I'm standing on one foot, tell me what to do right now, shortcut always leads to you ending up in the dust heap with other people who took a shortcut. And the longer route that feels harder in the first place is resilient and generative. So I have to challenge the question, because if I answer the question, people will try my one thing, and the minute it doesn't work exactly the way they hope, they'll go back to racing to the bottom.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it kind of speaks to the fact that, like, when people do look for shortcuts, it's, it's often the longest way, the longest route to get to where you are trying to get to.
0: Exactly right. And... So that's mostly what I have been selling for 25 years. A belief that you can do it and an insistence that the best way to do it is to take the long way.
1: Beautifully said. And I guess, speaking of of long journeys, what was one decision for you, maybe closer to like present day time that you feel kind of set the trajectory for everything else afterwards?
0: Well, if it's the trajectory for everything afterwards and I'm 63 years old, how far back do you want me to go?
1: Uh, You you could decide (laughs)
0: Well, I think deciding to get in my canoe and paddle on the Hudson River any day when the weather permits was a decision that changed the way I go to work. Because if you spend an hour paddling on a fjord in sight of New York City, it's a lot more likely that you will take a generative long view to the work you're going to do because you just paddled past 400,000-year-old cliffs. We're all surrounded by that. Mm. But if your whole day is revolving around...
1: But few notice, yeah. Yeah.
0: If your whole day is clearing your inbox and and making your KPRs go up, or whatever they're called, you're just part of the industrial system. And I'm not denying we need to create value for other people. We do. But if you're privileged enough to be listening to this podcast, you have enough resources to not have to be working in a fast food place for nine dollars you have the resources to have a, the means of production right on your desk and to at some level have agency. So if all you're going to do is please a misguided boss so that they can make their quarterly numbers happen on Tuesday, well, then when are you going to finally focus on what's going to happen in a month or a year? That is possible now if we just put down our social media for a little bit, stop worrying about how many followers we have on LinkedIn, and actually build something. That's probably worth it.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you're a you're a canoeing fan and paddling fan. I've been doing it for two years as well, so you're preaching to the choir right now. All
0: right, so for, forgive me. I've never been to your part of the world, but where, Kareem, do you take your canoe?
1: Yeah, so uh I'm I'm from Egypt, but I live
0: here in uh, in Ireland and basically In Ireland I, live in like I wasn't paying town. attention. Ireland's yeah. got great places to canoe. Can you understand how if I thought you were actually yeah. in Egypt? Other than the Nile, I just don't have this view of people paddling canoes. So, there you go. Yes, here's the interesting story about... Oh, yeah, so... Interesting story about Scotland and canoes, and then I'll let you talk. I spent the summer with a bunch of canoeists from Scotland. And I said to these guys in Canada, what are you doing with canoes in Scotland? And they said, there's canoes all over Scotland. (laughs) And I did some research. It turns out one guy, I think his name was McGregor, in 1880... Came over to Canada, learned how to canoe, brought three canoes back with him to Scotland, and he is the progenitor of every canoe in the whole country. One guy, like that's how his. Wow! Is so there you go.
1: That is insane. I mean, we're literally like an hour away. Ireland's literally like an hour away from uh, from Scotland, give or take. And I've I've heard it's it's like an absolutely magical place to to paddle over there. But like, yeah, yeah, I think like definitely has its has a way of like just slowing everything down and and kind of like putting things into into perspective. And I mean, it's literally the most anti-hustle culture thing you could you could possibly do. Uh, I'll tell you one more thing. I'm, I wonder if you do something like that, but i have uh, not clumsy at all. I've actually dropped my phone in the water once. So I've actually downgraded, I should say, I upgraded to a um, what people call a dumb phone, which is basically a Nokia. And I realized that my quality of life actually went up so much when I just got like one of those like $50 phones that they literally sell in you know what i mean and my quality of life actually went up so much and that became my kayak phone but it actually became kind of like my don't call me kind of phone and (laughs) much to the dismay of a lot of people that that were trying to get a hold of me i told them hey what's wrong with like a, a an old school call much to the dismay of many of them like i've been trying to just tell them that it's not about having a dumb phone it's about taking the time to actually go about your life in a different way. And I mean, I, r- I run, you know, like a tech company or whatever. Like it just has a way of putting things into perspective, things like going paddling, things like perhaps total immersion and just like having, doing things that people, sounds funny to say, but people doing things that people don't expect you to do, like waking up and not checking your phone first thing in the morning. What a concept.
0: Yeah. Well said.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we've come to our final key moment. What was, and I apologize because this is an annoying question.
0: <laughs> but what is
1: one learning for you? All throughout this journey, if there was one thing that you that you wanted to leave us with, what's one thing that, that you'd highlight?
0: Everything is going to be okay. That is not reassurance. That's semantics. If we define whatever ha- is happening as okay, that everything is going to be okay. And everything is going to be optimal. Everything isn't going to be the way we expected. But everything is going to be the way everything is going to be. And then what? And then what? And then what? And instead of using our force of will, to somehow control what's going to happen next. We can simply, not just, but simply do the work. When we simply do the work and let go of the outcome, we can get back to the work. But we spend so much of our time trying to control an outcome that's out of our control. That is the source of so much of our anxiety and our stress.
1: Yeah, beautifully said. I mean, one one book that me and my uh, my brother, who's my co-founder, we we literally like swear by is uh, the four disciplines of execution. It's a timeless book, and it talks about how most people ma- measure or focus on the the lag measures, right? Which is by definition, like if you're measuring how much you weigh today, that is a lagging indicator as opposed to lead measures, where you're measuring something that is within your control, which is pretty much doing the work, doing doing the thing, as opposed to reporting on the thing or or looking at the end result, the end result's gonna take care of itself, I feel.
0: Beautiful, I love that.
1: Well, Seth, thank you so much for coming on. I was wondering if you had any parting thoughts for our audience as they go about, I think embracing some of the concepts that we're gonna bring more to light from the Song of Significance. Any parting thoughts that you'd like to share?
0: I think the best way to learn something is to teach it to somebody else. And you have done a great job of teaching the people who listen. I would challenge the people who are listening to go teach it to somebody else because you don't need more time. You just need to decide. And the first step to deciding is to talk about
1: it. Awesome. Well, Seth, I wish you many more happy paddles in New York and swimming sessions. Uh, But yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, we'll see you soon.
0: Thank you for having me. Keep making a ruckus.